When I was a kid, if you wanted to insult someone's intelligence or spotlight their ignorance, you would call them a meathead. Little did I know that that's actually an appropriate description for us all. Did you know that your brain weighs about three pounds and 60% of it consists of fatty tissue? The brain is the meatiest organ in the human body. That means that we're all meatheads. But that doesn't mean that we lack intelligence. Actually, your meathead, your brain, can do amazing things. The human brain consists of 100 billion cells called neurons. If we took a sample of your gray matter the size of a grain of sand, it would contain 100,000 neurons, and each neuron would have 40,000 synapses, these little electrical connectors that interact with the other neurons. There are over a billion synapses in one grain of brain. Despite what some people think about you, there is a lot going on upstairs in your head. It's estimated that over 100,000 chemical reactions take place in your brain every second. Over 400 miles of blood vessels twist through your three pounds of fatty tissue, keeping your brain matter alive and active and healthy. The amount of blood that flows through your brain every 60 seconds is enough to fill up three eight-ounce soda cans. Your brain is 2% of your body weight, and yet it burns 20% of your energy and oxygen intake. Thus, 40 to 50% of your body heat is lost through your head. That's why your mama made sure there was a little cap on your head before you left the house on cold days. Did you know that when your brain cells don't get enough nourishment, they actually cannibalize each other? This means that if you diet too much, it may cause your brain to start eating itself. If you like brain cells, dieting might not be the smartest thing to do. It's also interesting that larger brains do not mean smarter brains. The average male brain is 10% larger than the average female brain, but you can draw your own conclusions. And it should come as no surprise to parents that a teenage brain is not fully formed. The human brain doesn't reach full maturity until the age of 25. And if you've ever lived with a teenager, that can explain a lot. Your brain is the most complex organ in your body. The world's most powerful computers can't compete with the human brain. Unlike the RAM on a computer hard drive, your brain's memory is virtually unlimited. Imagine, the average brain generates 70,000 thoughts every single day. 70,000 thoughts, mind you. That's one thought every 1.2 seconds. And yet, sadly, experts estimate that for most people, 80% of those thoughts are negative. This is why in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul commands us, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, 
If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate or think on these things. Your brain is an amazing creation of God, but as powerful a tool as it might be, it's up to you to employ your brain in a way that makes the most of its potential. And I'm not just talking about trying to expand its intelligence. Most of us meatheads are smart enough. I'm talking about directing its focus. God created your brain to bring him glory, to help you grow in Christ. Our brains were built for knowing and enjoying God. But we make choices, don't we? Our 70,000 thoughts a day can be allowed to wander away from God and get us into trouble, or they can be corralled and herded in a good and godly direction. We choose what and how we think. Remember in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, our text last week, Paul taught us to guard our thoughts. If we rejoice in one thing, be satisfied with few things, worry about nothing, pray about everything, and be thankful for anything, the peace of God will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. We need to develop, develop an attitude of trust and faith. And if we do, God will give us a piece of his peace. And like a military sentinel, the peace of God will stand watch over your thoughts. God's peace surpasses our understanding. God intends for his peace to rule over the decisions we make where we don't have all the information and where we can't see the complete picture. My decision should always be accompanied by God's peace. We need to let his peace set the pace. The peace of God guards our thoughts. But our thoughts don't just need to be guarded. They also need to be guided. The peace of God guards our thoughts, but we need to guide our minds in a Christward direction. We need to watch what and how we think. Remember, the theme of Philippians is finding joy at half-mast. Even in times of disappointment and grief and trial, if Jesus reigns in your heart, you can still know joy. But that's if we think correctly. If we don't take command of our thought life, if we don't guide our thoughts in the right direction, wrong thoughts can undermine that joy. Hey, 80% of 70,000 thoughts per day equals 56,000 negative thoughts that are peppering holes in your joy. How can we experience God and receive his joy if we are deliberately choosing to think negatively? We really underestimate the power of our thoughts. It's been said, you are today where your thoughts have brought you. You'll be tomorrow where your thoughts will take you. Your thought life shapes the rest of your life. Be careful what you think, for it is literally what you will become. I've heard it put, we are not what we think we are, but what we think we are. This is what the Bible teaches us. Proverbs 23 verse 7 reads, For as a person thinks in his heart, so is he. Outlook does produce outcome. I'm sure you've heard <coughs> Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, 
reap a character, so a character reap a destiny. Fat chance you'll live a joyful life if you don't pay attention to what goes on in that fatty tissue between your two ears. We need to guide our thoughts. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 tells us, gird up the loins of your mind. The phrase gird up, it means to get a grip. When it comes to our thought life, we need to roll up our shirt sleeves. We need to get a grip on what we entertain in our brain. For Paul and for Peter, this was the issue that called for determined effort, for relentless persistence. A serious follower of Jesus works at this. We discipline our minds to think pure and holy and godly thoughts. If you're a Christian, God has done a miracle in your spirit, in the eternal part of your person. You've been forgiven of your sin. You've been given a brand new nature. God has put a love in your heart for him and for other people. You are a new creation in Christ. But that doesn't mean that you'll think like one immediately. Our minds need to be renewed. As Paul says to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, Satan doesn't want you to become a Christian. But if he can't stop it, He certainly doesn't want you living like one. And to stop you from living like one, he puts all his efforts into keeping you from thinking like one. This is why Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. When we were kids, we collected lightning bugs, fireflies. Dad would take a ball jar and he'd stab some holes in the lid of the ball jar and then we'd run around the yard catching those lightning bugs in that jar, filling it up. I guess the holes were there so the bugs could breathe. At dusk, we'd run around the yard. We'd catch those fireflies. We'd fill up our jars with as many as possible. And this is what Paul is telling us to do with our thoughts, to do in our minds. Our thoughts are like fireflies. They light up and then float away. They drift off, and they have to be gathered up into one place, obedience to Christ. We need to collect every stray thought and focus it in a Godward direction. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 reads, Gird up the loins of your mind. But I like the translation, keep your mind on a leash. Think about it. You would never let your toddler wander off through the mall by himself unattended, nor would you let your dog run wild in the grocery store. That could be a problem. Then why in the world would you let your mind roam aimlessly without giving it the proper direction? I've heard it said, empty lots and empty minds are alike. They both collect trash. Vacant lots are notorious eyesores, and so are minds devoid of spiritual input. Not setting your mind on the right things is letting your mind get pulled down by the wrong things. This is why Paul steers our minds. He guides our thoughts. Whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Paul is teaching us a couple of lessons here. 
On the one hand, he's encouraging the Philippians to find wholesome material for their minds. Thoughts need to be stimulated. A new you should think new thoughts. That's why we need to feed our minds good and godly brain fuel. This refers to the television you watch, in the books you read, in the music you listen to, in the video games that you play. Paul is concerned about your input. Your brain is like a computer in that it's only going to be as good as the data it receives. If garbage goes in, then garbage will go out. If you're listening to a steady diet of obscenity-laced music, don't be surprised when your language becomes more coarse. If you're soaking in movies and television filled with lust and sensuality, how can you think your life will become purer and more devoted to your spouse? It won't. If you're obsessed with playing violent video games, then eventually you're going to begin to treat other people more callously. But if you input thoughts that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and good and virtuous and praiseworthy, then joy will be the output of your life. Here's what your mind, where your mind should be focused. Whatever things are true. Now, this means more than just truthful facts. It's a reference to bigger biblical truths. See, what if I reported to you that a tornado, tornado had touched down and ripped apart a trailer park? I would be truthful to the facts. But of what value would there be in meditating on the devastation of a tornado? That's more depressing than it is elevating. But if in thinking about that tornado, I brought in the overarching truths of God, his sovereignty over over nature, the eternal value of temporary trials, our fallen world, the reality of sin, our need for the Savior, even his love in these kinds of situations. If we thought about those truths, it would build up our faith. It would restore our joy. We need to think on whatever things are true and truth. We should also think on whatever things are noble. Rather than think like the rest of this world thinks, only about self-preservation and self-gratification, we should focus ourselves to think higher, nobler thoughts. You've probably had one say to you in the past, get your mind out of the gutter. That's what Paul is saying to us, that we need to get above the orbit of our own concerns, and we need to think objective biblical thoughts about the world and life and people and eternity and God's truths. I've heard it said, great minds talk about ideas. Average minds talk about things. Small minds talk about people. What do you talk about? We need to be large-minded people and think noble thoughts. In addition, we need to think on whatever things are just. Or literally, what things are right in the eyes of God, right or just in God's perspective. The world we live in has been warped by sin. Values, identities, gender roles, sexuality has all been twisted. And our world tries to normalize the twistedness. Today's media pushes a godless agenda. 
Terry Fisher, a producer of the TV program L.A. Law, he was quoted recently as saying, for television, married or celibate characters aren't as much fun. In other words, Hollywood is intent on promoting promiscuity, glamorizing the types of sex that God prohibits. To think on what's just is to applaud portrayals of life as God intended. Men taking responsibility for others. Women nurturing their own. Men and women treating love as a commitment and intimacy as a byproduct of that commitment. We need to think on what untwists the twisted. And then we need to think on whatever things are pure. The opposite of pure is murky, cloudy, contaminated. If it's pure, it's clean and clear. You can see through something that's pure. There's no selfish agenda. There are no ulterior motives. We need to force our minds to think on things that aren't tainted by greed or lust or envy. Oh, but Pastor Sandy, you say, that's going to limit my options. That's going to rule out some of my favorite TV programs now. And well, it might. Hey, it's easy to just settle for the status quo. What if you turned on the faucet in your kitchen and outstreamed slimy, filthy, dirty water? Would you drink it? Just because the county's pumping it into your water system, would you drink it? Of course not. And just because the only options on your TV are impure, that doesn't mean that you're free to view the garbage. Paul is saying that we need to value our spiritual health as much as we do our physical health. We need to be selective. To obey verse 8, to meditate on positive, godly things, probably involves the inverse. Whatever things are lies... Whatever things that take your mind into the gutter, whatever things are twisted and not as God intended, whatever things are trashy or murky, whatever things are ugly and offensive, whatever things only depress, if there is anything that causes shame or that brings about embarrassment, do not think on these things. Thinking pure thoughts will involve not thinking corrupt thoughts. If you examined our church lawn, looks pretty good, by the way, you would, though, find some splotchy areas, places in the turf where there are more weeds than grass. Now, you could take time to pull the weeds, but here's the deal. Where the grass is lush and thick, there are no weeds. The weeds only grow where there is no grass. So the best way to beautify our lawn would be to sow more good seeds. The good seed chokes out the weeds. And this is how you clean up your thought life. Fill your downtime, the recreational spaces in your schedule, with good and godly influences. Sow good seed. Get your nose out of that TV and play a board game with your family. Or entertain some Christian friends. Certainly make a commitment to read God's Word. You know, if you took home one of those Bibles we give away on Sunday mornings and you read just three pages a day, six days a week, you could read through the whole Bible in less than a year. 
That seems like a small commitment to make to get a great benefit. Thinking true and pure and lovely thoughts are the best way to drive out the evil and selfish and lustful thoughts. (laughs) Thus, Paul says, whatever things are lovely, God has created a world around us that's full of beauty. He desires that we enjoy his wonders and appreciate his loveliness. Yet, some of us, we rush through our lives and never stop to smell the roses, never enjoy the sunsets. Some of us are so interested in our favorite sitcom, we never lay out under the stars at night and enjoy God's handiwork. A baby's first steps, a little child's inquisitiveness, an athlete's skill are all lovely things that should be enjoyed and appreciated by God's people. A newborn baby entered my world this past week. Her satisfied mom and excited dad were lovely to behold. In our family, we've got five-year-olds starting kindergarten and lovebirds about to get married. God has filled up our lives with lovely things. And when I take the time to think about them, they bring me great joy. Paul also tells us to think on whatever things are of good report. This is in contrast to the bad reports that seem to surround us these days. Today's media has a bad news bias. 90% of what is presented as news is negative. There's an old newspaper saying, if it bleeds, it leads. And this is how the the media sees things. The, The violent, the sensational, always gets pushed out in front. But this constant onslaught of negativity doesn't accurately portray what's happening in our world. Did you know that in 2017, the United States' life expectancy rose to 78.8 years old. That's a record high. That's good news. In the year 1900, the average American was only expected to live to 47 years old. See how far we've come? That should be reason to rejoice. And yet watch today's evening news and you'll hear a flesh-eating bacteria and exotic viruses, and Ebola, and antibiotic-resistant superbugs, etc., etc. You'll wonder if the human race is on the verge of extinction. The news today has a negative slant. For example, every summer's shark attack reports. Oh, the media will make sure you hear about the 15 people worldwide who died of shark bites but not the millions and millions of people who enjoyed a great day at the beach. I mean, some of you have stopped going in the ocean for fear of getting eaten by a shark. Just fess up to it right now. And yet, statistically, you're far more likely to get struck by lightning than attacked by a shark. We've all been adversely affected by this avalanche of bad news that we're subjected to each night. We lose proportion. In today's world, poverty and hunger are in steep decline. Democracy is on the rise all around the world. Workers now have more free and discretionary time. Vaccines and antibiotics are more readily available. Most places are less violent. Literacy rates are increasing. And yet, have you heard any of these stories? Probably not. Our news feed is full of reports of terror attacks and sexual predators and mothers who kill their babies. 
But we don't hear anything about the brave first responder who helps out in a crisis or the good Samaritan who befriends a neighbor or the generosity of a person who gives so the boys club can open up a place in the afternoon where kids can go after school. Hey, we will remove lots of anxiety from our lives and restore our joy if we think on things of a good report. Paul concludes his list of meditatable things. If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, add virtuous and praiseworthy to what we should think about. See, for every school teacher who dominates, I'm sorry, for every school shooter who dominates the evening news, we could spotlight 10,000 teachers who love our kids and who are faithful to help educate our kids. I'm not suggesting we bury our heads in the sand. We need to know about the evil around us. But our perspective gets blurred and our attitude gets warped when we focus on the shame-worthy rather than the praiseworthy, on the evil rather than the virtuous. If, while, if you're only watching Fox News and CNN every night and you find your pulse racing and your blood pressure spiking, it's not a good thing. You getting angry isn't going to make this world a better place. You need to watch what you're thinking and guide your minds back into the joy that's ours in Jesus. Yet, I want you to realize that Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 is a verse with teeth. Sometimes we read this verse and we think of it as a sappy, sort of sugar-coated slogan for the positive thinking crowd. Oh, think on whatever things are true. Often verse 8 gets sung to a happy-go-lucky tune. It comes with hand motions and balloons and smiley faces. But in reality, this is a hard verse. This is not an easy verse to reply. It takes courage. This is actually a countercultural, revolutionary verse that can only be obeyed by brave and bold and serious people. This verse defies the sarcasm and skepticism so prevalent in our society. This verse is more the result of a radical mindset than it is just some carefree, innocuous jingle. In verse 8, Paul is challenging us to choose not just what we think about, but how we think about all things. Again, Paul says, verse 8, Brethren, whatever things are true, in essence, don't take, don't take anybody's word for granted. That's what he's saying. You need to learn to look behind what's being said and focus on the truth. Here the Greek word true, it speaks of exposing something hidden. Did you know words can reveal or conceal? This is why we need to ask, is what's being said true or false? We need to look behind what's being said for what's true. I hope all of our college-bound students here today realize that not every professor you meet is going to have your welfare in mind. Some teachers teach only because they failed at doing. They have grown cynical and jaded, and they now delight in tearing down their students' faith. Life has not grown their way, and now they've got an axe to grind. 
Don't you be gullible. Don't give respect where it isn't warranted. You need to look behind what's being said to what's true. You need to look for the truth behind every situation. You need to look behind, and you also need to look above. Whatever things are noble. Isaiah says God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. This means we should look to elevate the quality of our thought life. Hey, no stinking thinking. You know, often we think things that we would never say. We'd be embarrassed if anyone actually heard what we thought. But realize, whenever you think, you're thinking in God's presence. Think about it. God knows your thoughts. Thus think heavenly thoughts that honor God. And think justly. The idea is not just to look above, but take that perspective and use it to evaluate what you're looking at. Is it twisted or is it God-aligned? Look behind, look above, look at, and look through. Pure intention, see through. If there's no greed or pride or lust coloring my mind, muddying my motives, my thoughts will be pure ones. Whatever things are pure is a mindset through which I need to view people and view life. And whatever is lovely, if your intentions are pure or see-through, then you can look on what's lovely and enjoy the beauty that God has placed all around us. It's an impure mind that takes pure things and defiles them. And you can look to the good report. Don't let your mind get trapped in negativity. We are not alone. God is still at work, and there is a lot of good going on around us. This is why we're called on to be on the lookout for any virtue and anything praiseworthy. In a world that's often cynical and evil, God wants us to be lookouts for what is good and godly and is evidence of his grace. See, verse 8 is not just a description of what we should focus on in life, but how we should look at life, all of life, as it unfolds around us. Look behind what's said to what's true. Look above and lift up your thoughts. Look at and closely evaluate things as they should be. Look through and have a pure gaze. Look on and dare to enjoy all that's lovely in life. Look to the good reports and look out for the evidences that God is at work all around us. And Christians are called to be serious about cultivating this kind of mindset. Paul says, meditate on these things. The Greek word translated meditate implies more than just casual thoughts. It's the word from which we get our word logarithm or a mathematical calculation, the kind of thinking that Paul says should go into what's true and noble and just and lovely and of good report and virtuous and praiseworthy is the type of brain drain that you want to put into a complex mathematical equation. (coughs) Paul is saying (coughs) that you need to give serious concentration to not just what you think, but how you think. Our Lord wants godly thinking to become automatic, second nature to us. The grid that we have here in verse 8 should be our our default mindset. In an interview, 
NFL quarterback Andrew Luck was asked what he thinks about when he drops back to pass. Luck answered, you don't want to think about it. He went on to describe how that a quarterback's passing mechanics had to be so deeply ingrained in his muscle memory that during the game, the art of passing is just on autopilot. He doesn't think about it. There's too much else for him to focus on to get distracted with his passing. He's got 21 other men on the field running around. He has to see those men. He has to account for where they are. For there are four or five 300-pound assassins that are trying to knock him out of the game. Grown men are running around at full speed. A quarterback has about three seconds to survey the whole field, assess where everyone's at, let the ball fly at the right arc in the right velocity to hit a man sprinting at an angle in full stride. That's like playing a chess game in the blink of an eye. This is why a quarterback's thoughts have to progress beyond mere thinking to design and to instinct. A quarterback practices and practices. He watches and studies film. He trains to see the reads that he'll use to make his decisions. Come game time, his thinking is on autopilot. And the same should be true of a Christian. In the heat of the moment, when temptation raises its ugly head, in the midst of a fiery trial, a Christian shouldn't even have to think about it. He or she should be able to automatically gravitate toward what's true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report and virtuous and praiseworthy. This is where the believer runs for refuge. When life gets tough, rather than frustration or irritation or aggravation, our default mode should be on meditation on what's true and noble and lovely and the like. This is another of the keys to finding joy at half-mast. And yet Paul isn't just content with us with addressing our meditation. He also has a word about our imitation. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 9, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. And to me, this is one of the most incredible statements in all of the Scripture. For think of what Paul is daring to say. Now maybe you could say this at church on Sunday mornings. Maybe. I doubt it, but maybe. But at 6 a.m. on Monday morning, when you're still groggy, when you're wiping the sleep from your eyes, when your alarm hasn't gone off and you're late, when you're stuck in traffic, or maybe at the end of the day when your boss hands you an hour of work with only 15 minutes left in the day, then can you say, as I do, you do as I do, and the holy God will be with you. Can you say that? Who in the world would dare to make such a statement? If the Holy Spirit had not made a point of putting Paul's statement in the pages of Scripture, we would have thought he was being arrogant or prideful or something. Apparently, for Paul, the Christian life wasn't just an exercise in believing and thinking, but also in doing. Paul was determined to walk the walk. He wanted to walk the talk. He lived what he believed. He put his money with it where his mouth was. Too many Christians live by the motto, do as I say, 
not as I do. Paul, though, practiced what he preached. I'll never forget a funeral I officiated once where all of the children of the deceased, they got up and they made reference to their dad's favorite saying, do as I say, not as I do. All the kids laughed about it when they mentioned it. His words had apparently become a family joke. Yet sadly, even though the man we were burying had an active, saving faith, and I believe he's in heaven today, I'm not sure any of his kids have followed his example. He's failed to pass it on. See, people aren't prone to follow words, but deeds. Paul set an example in the way he thought and in the way he lived that the Philippians wanted to follow. What about you? Will your kids, your co-workers, your friends, do your neighbors, does your family follow your example? Are you willing to say, do as I do, not just as I say? Ray Ortland, he writes of the Bible that his father gave him his senior year in high school. Fifty years later, he reread what his dad had written. Nothing could be greater than to have a son, a son who loves the Lord and walks with him. Your mom and I have found this book, Our Dearest Treasure. We give it to you and in doing so can give nothing greater. Be a student of the Bible and your life will be full of blessing. We love you, Dad. In reflecting back on this gift, Ray writes of his dad, As I read these wonderful words from 50 years ago, I never thought, Dad doesn't really believe that. It's just religious talk. I knew he meant it because I watched him live it. He was a student of the Bible, and his life was full of blessing, and I wanted what he had. It took me a few more years to get clarity on some things, but what Dad wrote in that Bible made a deep impression it moved me then, and it moves me now. Understand, if you, if you don't make a deep impression on the people you love, it means that you're not living a convincing life. And you'll never live a convincing life if you don't think on serious subjects and develop a godly mindset. Friends, when you meditate on godly things... It produces the kind of life that others will want to imitate. In closing, notice back in verse 7. It's the peace of God that guards our thoughts. Now in verse 9, we're told that the reward for guiding our thoughts is the God of peace. Notice this. Guarded by the peace of God, guided to the God of peace. We've come full circle. And when we live that kind of life, others will want to follow.